it's sort of like a diving board. If you've ever gone on diving on a really high diving board, if you look down, you're going to freak out and you're not going to jump. You just got to jump. Yeah. And so that's been my mentality. You should probably see a therapist. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably should stop to reflect on the positive moments. But for me, it's probably a defense mechanism more than anything. I don't, I don't want to look down because yeah. if I do, I'm, I'll never jump. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Speaking of world-class companies, there are more incredible startups in the Kleiner portfolio than I've ever seen. When I was operating, I would have begged to be in some of these companies. If you're listening, and we don't do sponsorships on this show, so I figured I'd use this opportunity. If you're listening and you are inspired by the stories of my guests and you want to find the next incredible ride for you, reach out to me. Let's find an amazing job in the Kleiner portfolio. Now let's get to the episode. All right, Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Have you heard one of these yet? If not, I start them all the same way. So I'll screw something up. You tell me what I screwed up and then we'll use that as kind of our launching pad. You got your BA in marketing and advertising from the University of Central Florida. Then you went to Definition 6, which was like an ad agency, spent about three years there. SigFig from 2011 to 13 as a product marketing manager. Zenefits as the VP of marketing and first hire from 2013 to 16, and rippling from 2018 to the present. Honestly, I might've actually not screwed that up. No, you got it. Okay, good. All right, you gotta start with the Google Please Hire Me. I know you've said this story before, but there's no way for me to start your career off without this story, so please. Yeah, I started my career in advertising, and a few years in, this was 15, or so years ago, I think. This is when tech was really taking off and it just felt like the future was tech and decided to very stupidly quit my job thinking I'd be able to get another one, no problem. And then 2008 hit. And so I timed it absolutely perfectly and started applying to jobs in San Francisco, Google, Amazon, you name it. Couldn't get a call back from anyone for about six months. And then got pretty depressed. And after eating and drinking enough and sitting on the couch enough, I finally decided to do something about it and thought, you know, when I'm in marketing, I should be able to get someone's attention, at, at the very least a recruiter's. And so I decided to <laughs> spend my entire life savings to try and get a job with Google. And I did that by taking off my pants, slapping on a mustache and recording a video for YouTube, which was still fairly new. You're in your boxers yeah. with a mustache. So fun fact, I've told this story a bunch, but I've never actually told people some of the funnier details, which is I knew nothing about videography. And so at the time I was single and I was on OkCupid, one of the women on there was a videographer. And I said, you know, look, I'm, I'm not interested, but I really need help filming a video. Would you be interested? It could be fun. And she said, sure. And then we ended up doing it in a historical house in Georgia. And I told them I was at Georgia College, which I wasn't. And in the video, I take off my pants. I'm in this sort of wooden room. And they end up walking in on me without my pants and kicking me out. But fortunately- While you're filming. Yeah. So there you go. Two never before her details of my, <laughs> my Google video. <laughs> so anyway, I did this video. I- paid $5,000 for a propeller plane to fly around Google's campus with my URL. I printed out giant six-foot cardboard cutouts of myself holding up my URL and shipped it to every HR department at Google. And I can't even imagine what those people thought opening the package. But lo and behold, ended up getting national press and got interviews with pretty much everyone. And my first stupid decision was quitting my job without any prospects. And then my second stupid decision was turning down to big tech companies to join a startup, which was Parker's first company called SigFig. Mm -hmm. And then that started my whole sort of trajectory from there. Why Google? Was that the beacon of Silicon Valley to you? This is going to sound super petty now because I didn't get the job. But the truth is I actually didn't really want to work at Google. Yeah. I just figured as a marketer, Google was sort of one of the hot companies at the moment and just figured it would be a good news hook. 
So the idea was, I'm going to hit them from all sides. I mean, like, to be clear, I would have taken the job. Yeah, yeah, uh, right. But you were like going to do video. You were going to do in-person cardboards. Like you were doing it all just to hit them from literally every angle. Yeah. Oh, I did everything. Yeah. And then <laughs> and you flew a sign of the URL above the campus. Well, fortunately. And this was where all the money went. Is that right? Like when you said you spent your life savings on yeah. stuff, it was just these types of- I mean, of I only had $6,000 in my bank account. <laughs> 5,000 went to a plane, $1,000 went to cardboard cutouts. And fortunately, my videographer was free thanks to OkCupid. That is so funny. Yeah. So Parker must have loved that. How did that transpire? So Google, oddly enough, I don't think really liked it because when I talked to the recruiter, I had the feeling <laughs> she thought the whole situation was a little crazy, but Parker definitely loved it. He loves anyone with a chip on their shoulder and creativity. And I, I definitely have at least one of those things in spades. I'm not sure which yet. But yeah, he loved it. And I ended up joining SigFig because I thought the idea at the time was really smart. It was really, you know, Betterment and Wealthfront and all mm-hmm. those. Yeah. Parker had the idea for a robo-advisor way before any of those things launched. And I thought it was a great idea. And so I joined him. And that's why I've joined all three of Parker's companies. I always joke, sort of like a pig with truffles, and he could sniff out these multi-billion dollar product opportunities. It's incredible. You're wearing a Yankees hat, time of the recording. I was actually in Tribeca for the last four months. Not sure why I left, why we're both in South Park in San Francisco, but here we are. Are you moving back? You moved back. Parker made you come back. Office is coming back. Where do things stand? <laughs> Lived in San Francisco seven years, moved to New York for about four, and then came back just because the company's doing well. Was that the deal? Was that the implicit agreement? No, I just feel like to effectively manage a team, you gotta, you know, the team's 30 people probably growing to 60. Your team? My team, just the marketing team. I need to be there in person to be an effective leader. Dude, I was doing research for this. And one of the things that surprised me was that unless I am an idiot, you don't have a Twitter. No. And you don't post anything on LinkedIn. I was thinking like, all right, I'm starting to interview some CMOs that's gonna be easy because there's gonna be all sorts of public record of all sorts of different weird thoughts that they've had throughout their life that are gonna be around that I could start picking up the pieces on, nothing. Uh, So this is gonna sound really bad as a marketer. I hate social media. Yeah. I have absolutely nothing interesting to share about myself. And when I see, I mean, this is not to knock other CMOs, but when I see other people constantly tweeting, constantly posting on LinkedIn, I, I just think, where do you find the time to do that? <laughs> so it's more just a time constraint than anything. But yeah, I'm not a social media guy. Fair enough. You made my job harder. Okay. I want to go through some of this stuff and then we're going to get to rippling and then we're going to go probably off the script for a while here. On the Zenefits piece, and I had Sam Blonde on sub episode 10 of yeah. the show, who is your sales counterpart at Zenefits. So I think it's well-documented what this company did. Went from zero to 65 million in three and a half years. One of the fastest growing SaaS companies. $4 billion valuation from zero in three years, blah, blah, blah. You were employee number one. I'd love to just rewind to the early, early days of that. First of all, what happened at SigFig? How did you build the conviction to then go do it again with the same founder? And then once you did, what did the early days feel like? Sorry, that's a three-part question. Yeah. I'm definitely not going to remember all three parts. But the first part, Parker left shortly after I joined SigFig. So I actually didn't know him that long, but I thought he was super smart. And then I think about two years in, I was looking for a place to rent and went to his apartment. And when I went there, it was total coincidentally, he just pulled me aside and sort of told me the idea of Zenefits. And I was, that's genius. And I forget if I asked him or if he asked me, but one of us asked if I could help get the first few dozen customers. And I said, sure. So on the side, I at night sort of moonlit and did a bunch of demand gen stuff to help Parker get his first 30 customers. And even beyond that, you know, I probably helped close the first million dollars in ARR. I mean, I was personally on calls, closing deals, that kind of stuff. And a while, just me and him in his kitchen, I was working for free living off burritos. And then he eventually said, you have to marry or leave me. And I was just so energized and so bought into the idea that I left. And I actually, I remember also, I don't think this is anything I've ever told anyone. 
But when he did ask me to join, I was actually pretty nervous because Parker has really high expectations. And, you know, I was pretty insecure at the time. And I'm like, are you sure you want me to join to start and run marketing, at least in the beginning? It's like I've never even bought a billboard before. And so I was talking myself out of the job and Parker goes, I forget exactly what he said, but it was something like, you're a smart guy. You'll figure out how to buy billboards. Please don't make me talk you out of this equity. You're going to regret it. And so I said, okay, if, if you trust me, let's do this. And of course, the ironic thing is like a year later, we were buying like millions in billboards and it turns out it's not that hard. And so, yeah, that's how it all started. But if he wasn't adamant, I definitely would probably be in a very different place in my life. Can we dig a layer deeper on the first few dozen customers? You said doing a bunch of demand gen stuff. Yeah. What did that look like? So what I did at Zenefits, what I did at Rippling in the beginning was the first thing you need to figure out, because in both cases, we are in a pretty saturated space, payroll, benefits, that kind of stuff. So lots of competitors in this space. And so the question is, is how do you cut through the noise to get someone's attention and get them to leave something like an ADP? And so what I did for months was just write email after email after email and also run PPC ads and display ads all sort of in parallel to figure out what messaging converted the best. And what I found just sort of time and time again, and I've been able to prove this time and time again with data, it's a combination of PPC, display ads, and email. There's just a message that resonates 3x more than everything else. And when you have that message, that sort of permeates through everything else. And so how I helped get the first customers was A, figuring out the messaging through a bunch of testing and then basically running all the email campaigns and actually hopping on the phone with customers and closing them myself and hearing the customer, closing the customer, that informed also everything, all of our campaigns, all of our marketing. And so that's not always obviously possible if you're an enterprise company, but if you sell to SMBs, I think every CMO should close a deal, at least one. And for those listening, not me, of course, but for those listening, what does PPC and display ads mean? Oh, uh, <laughs> pay-per-click. So running ads on Google. Got it. And then display ads or, you know, display banners across yep. the web. And did you have a product? Were you just tinkering with messaging? Was the way that you A-B tested messaging and uncovering which message resonated 3X more helping inform Parker on the product? Or was the product basically directionally already built and you were adjusting minor tweaks to... Oh, no. So at a lot of companies... Yeah, totally. A lot of companies marketing and particularly product marketing inform product. But at Rippling, at Zenefits, you know, I think Parker is unique in that he's definitely a product-led CEO. He keeps his ear close to the ground in terms of the customer and has... I mean, I like Parker, but the reason I follow him is because of his product vision. And so I was just sort of selling what he built. And at no point was I sort of influencing product. So there was something there. At all three companies. At Zenefits, it was the world's first way for companies to get their health insurance online, literally before Zenefits. And this is only maybe 10 years ago, but even just 10 years ago, to get health insurance Not as even. a business, you had to go to a broker, fill out forms, and they had to fax it to an insurance carrier because literally the only way for the broker to do it was through a fax machine. And so online health insurance didn't exist. The other thing that didn't really exist was sort of a deeply integrated HR system. So even ADP, you had payroll benefits, but they were all sort of separate logins and none of these things were integrated or connected to each other. And so the second thing that Rippling or Zenefits was really special was the fact that you could manage your payroll, your benefits, HR in a single system, but all that administration work you normally had to deal with was just gone because all this stuff was integrated. And after Zenefits, Parker realized that Zenefits was really just sort of the seed of a much larger opportunity, not even opportunity, but of a much more interesting and powerful product for customers. And were you literally closing those first deals? Oh, yeah. In my opinion, I think the best CMOs can be like the number one sales rep and the number one sales rep can be a CMO because at the end of the day, it just comes down to sales. So you think it works in the inverse as well? The best CROs or VPs of sales 
I mean, Matt Plank writes sometimes better cold emails than I do. Yeah. Matt Plank's the current VP of sales yeah. at everything. Yep. But also Sam Blonde, same deal. It's just about how do you package something, reflect people's pain at them, and convince them that you can solve it. Can I ask you a kind of weird question? So I love um, weird questions. Okay, so I hope it's weird. Yeah, I probably not. So if I was you and you closed the first five to ten customers, you're still very young. At that point, you're incredibly young, and you ostensibly have pretty much no idea what you're doing. Like in this world, you've never really done it. Right? So I'm not sure I know what I'm doing. Yeah, but yeah. yeah fair enough. Me neither. I would be like, oh my God, we closed deals. For some reason, I feel like Parker would not feel that way. For some reason, I feel like Parker would be like, yeah, great, like, congrats. We closed these first five deals. Of course we did. Like, this is a product that everyone's gonna want. On to the next one. Or was there this feeling of a milestone was achieved in those first early days of closing these deals? Because it's really special. And we see it all the time here at Kleiner, but I don't know. I don't wanna speak for Parker, but as far as I go, I've never really celebrated like that or really thought about it very much. And I think part of the reason why is when you're just so goal-oriented and focused on winning, you don't really reflect or think about it. You're just so focused on the next goal. And the other thing with Parker in particular is he really sort of pushes you and puts his trust on you in you. And when when you do have moments of insecurity or think something is too overwhelming, he really gives you the confidence to sort of reach that next level. And really never at Rippling, but at Zenefits, when you break through a wall and you get to the sort of the next challenge, right when you get comfortable and you think like, I've got this, when you break past that ceiling and get to the next level, you immediately go, oh man, how do I do this? Yep. <laughs> at what point did you realize, oh shit, this isn't SigFig. At what point did you realize this is a serious business? Was there any moments, early days, customers? I have no idea, but just something. Generally, startups don't work this way, but like, were there early signals that you could feel in your gut that there was something here? Oh yeah. So having been at two successful companies, there's definitely some signals that the two successful companies I've worked at there's been a few things that have really stood out to me as leading indicators. One is people's reaction on demos. So at Zenefits, you know, at the time I thought nothing of it. And to your question of, did you realize what was going on in the moment? I mean, no, really across the board. <laughs> and on demos, customers would go, holy crap, this is amazing. And they would have these like really emotional reactions, which at the time I was just like, oh, this is great. They want to buy. I mm -hmm. love it. But I only realized after the fact that these like really emotional reactions to a demo are like not normal in software. Normally when you demo software, people are not like, holy shit, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. And so at Rippling, before I joined, I wanted to hop on demos just to see what customers were saying. And literally the first demo I hopped on, it was with an HR woman in the Midwest. It was a blue collar company. So, you know, not the most sort of tech forward demographic and in, in industry. And halfway through the demo, I, I forget exactly what the rep was showing, but the woman goes, these are her words, not mine. And I'm probably butchering her accent, but she goes, holy fucking shit. That is so fucking cool. How do you do that? <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, when I heard her say that, I just immediately knew that that was a pretty strong signal that Parker was onto something again. Yep. So first time around when you started to feel those signals, when you felt it, what was the first hire that you made? How long did it take you to make that hire? So again, I'm only speaking from SMB SaaS experience, but my recommendation to anyone who is in that space is your first hire should be someone like me, although hopefully a bit smarter, but a generalist that could sort of you could helicopter into anything and they can go from zero to one. They may not be the, the one to be running all of your paid campaigns or the one to be doing all of your branding, but they know enough about everything and they're smart enough to sort of figure it out and go from zero to one. And grit, <laughs> I definitely need grit. The second hire should really be a marketing ops person. And I don't think most people understand marketing operations or really value it, but that is probably the most important hire you can make in the beginning next to someone like me because what are you going to really need to do anything 
effectively or at scale. You're going to need attribution. You're going to need reporting. You're going to need automation. Can I set up Marketo and Salesforce and all that stuff? Yeah, probably pretty badly, but that's not a good use of my time. And so building an operational infrastructure, a really strong one from the get-go, is, I think, part of what made Zenefit successful and definitely what has made Rippling successful. And is that operations peer or partner of yours also a generalist, i.e., are they kind of a RevOps person, sales slash marketing operations? The toolings are starting to blend together anyway, or is it, are those two distinct jobs? In both cases, it's benefits and Rippling, I found someone that you're describing. But those people are really hard to find. But yeah, that is definitely the profile to look for. But, you know, obviously, as you get bigger, they move squarely into marketing and then you hire a sales ops team and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And let's roll with that line of thinking for a little bit. So let's assume that generalist is the right way to go. Someone to get you from zero to one, zero to one could be literally zero to a million of ARR or whatever you want to call it. Zero to one could be zero to product market fit. That could happen earlier when you can start to feel the the pull. Oh, by the way, just for reference, we got to our first few million in revenue with just me and the ops person. Yeah. First few million. Yeah. And how much of that first few million was self-service rather than sales-assisted closing? Oh, I mean, it was 100% marketing. You said it earlier. I think the two things that I've also heard he looks for is like a chip on your shoulder and some creativity. I think the chip on your shoulder thing is an interesting one. What does that mean? Does he see that in himself and he wants to see that in others kind of thing? I'm not even speaking on behalf of Parker. Like, what does that mean for you? Do you look for that on your team? I think I look for people who have something to, I mean, something to prove is not really the right way to put it. But, you know, in my case, at Zenefits, it was something to prove that I could do this. With this opportunity, I can turn it into something big. And at Rippling, my chip on my shoulder is I want to prove that Zenefits wasn't a fluke. It wasn't circumstance or, I mean, it was definitely somewhat luck, but I basically wanted to prove I'm not a one-trick pony. Now my chip on my shoulder is I want to take a company public. I think some people, when they hear chip on their shoulder, they think it sounds negative, but Mm -hmm. I don't view it negative at all. I think about it the same way. I actually think insecurity is an interesting way of framing it, which is, and and you mentioned that about yourself during the Zenefits days. Like I feel that every time I make a job leap, it's out of ego and insecurity where I'm like, I need to prove to myself that I wasn't a part of a, a really great circumstance. I need to go to venture because I need to prove to myself that I'm a good employee, not a good salesperson. I need to go into venture so that I can prove that I can go back to being an individual contributor and not a leader of a team so that others are doing things on my behalf. I think that comes and stems from insecurity. I think that's kind of healthy in some way. Yeah, I mean, look, definitely the best people on our team, I think all share that trait. Not gonna talk to their personal insecurities, but you know, I think we all have some version of that in common. And that's, there's a lot of ways to put and keep fire in your belly, but insecurity is one of them. You're sitting in bed firing off A-B testing of three-letter acronyms and emails and billboards and whatever. And something's got to push you to do that. You're getting fed burritos as your payroll. That has to come from like, I got to prove something yeah. here. You either have to have something to prove to yourself or someone else or you either have to have a goal, maybe financial, or you just have to be a crazy to join a company with five people. <laughs> yeah. You have to have one of those things you're not going to last very long. Another weird question. Do you think as you look back and having had much more success than you did pre-Zenefits now, do you think that before maybe you used to have something to prove, and maybe I'm just projecting my own shit, but you have something to prove to others, whereas now it's more something to prove to yourself? It was always to myself. I never really cared about other people. It was definitely always myself. All right, and then one more question on this. It seems extreme to make the jump from wanting to go to a company like Google or any of these big tech companies to then going the exact opposite. What was your evaluation criteria in those days? Was it just, I want to get into tech. I want to get into Silicon Valley. And Google was the beachhead kind of way of doing that. Like, I think about your decision-making process there and to go from Google to SigFig to first employee, not that you went to Google, but it's just a pretty quick transition. I'd just love to hear your mindset. So I knew nothing going in. Remember, I was 20, 
23-year-old or 24-year-old in advertising in Atlanta, Georgia. So I didn't, I didn't know anything about startups or Google. But after going through the interview process, is like, I'll tell you my interview process with Google. My interview process with Google, the first call, they start telling me about, uh, what's it called? The product marketing, ro- well, now I'm definitely never going to get a job with Google <laughs> after I tell this story, but it was called the product marketing rotational program or something. Yeah. And the first 10 minutes of the call was this rotational program. We only accept the best people in the world. Everyone is Ivy League educated, typically with a 4.0. And I stopped her. I jokingly said, I don't, I don't know if you noticed, but I went to a mediocre college and got a mediocre GPA. And I got this call by taking off my pants. Zero response, zero laughter, no reaction. She just sort of kept on going down the line. And all of my experiences with the big tech companies were all in some way didn't inspire me or get me excited. And when I met Parker, it was just completely different. He told me about the idea and you could just tell he cared deeply. He was passionate. He was super down to earth. I was able to be myself. I was able to make jokes like that. And he laughed. Parker has probably worn the same pair of New Balance since I met him 10 years ago. I think he owns maybe three t-shirts. The same is pretty much for me. So I just didn't see myself working in an environment like that. And I didn't want to be a small fish in a big pond. Makes sense. Fast forward, we're at launch. We're a week or a few weeks or a month before launch. Then what unfolds? Like how'd it go? Yeah. So Parker's original idea was for Zenefits to be online health insurance. And then when he started selling, started speaking to customers, he sort of realized that all of these things are sort of interconnected. Like, yes, it started with online health insurance, but health insurance and benefits actually touches payroll because every single pay run, you have to enter in everyone's health insurance deductions in the payroll. And then he realized payroll touches your HR system. And he realized that just all of these things are interconnected. And the reason you end up having to do all this administration work is because they're not connected. He felt that pain because he was a founder and he hated dealing with health insurance and payroll and all the manual administration crap. And so I forget the exact timeline, but maybe it was a month, but very, very close to launch. He's like, I want to sort of, he definitely didn't say pivot, but he basically said, I think there's a much bigger opportunity here to do kind of like an all-in-one HR system. I just spent all this time marketing it, creating the website. And I'm like, you're crazy. You're going to completely change the direction of the company before it's even launched? You're a madman. Now, of course, I was wrong. Zenefits did pretty well. Rippling did pretty well. But that's another reason I follow Parker. He has unwavering product vision. I've heard you say this. I think it's so illustrative of the way that Rippling, Zenefits, Parker, you all think. At 40 people at Zenefits, Parker was looking at 100,000 square feet offices, which is enough for what? I don't know, like a thousand plus yeah. people. That mindset, what is that? <laughs> what is that? I. This was after launch, like you had just launched. Y- you mean, how did I feel about that? Explain that mindset to me organizationally, thinking in those terms. You mean that early on? Yeah, like five years away from now. Oh, this is all situational, right? But at Zenefits, it was a greenfield opportunity growing like a weed. And you sort of have to make those decisions pretty far in advance. Otherwise, it's too late. And so most people just don't think five steps ahead. Parker was thinking five steps ahead. And when you look at Apple or Amazon, they always talk about the fact that the thing they're launching today they've been thinking about for five years. In that specific example, it's just foresight. But if the question is, is how did I feel about going from Parker's kitchen table eating burritos to opening thousand square foot offices, I never stopped to think about it because if I did, I'd probably have a panic attack. Mm-hmm. Like too much pressure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you and Sam were super young. I remember I was at sushi with Sam in San Francisco. We were just talking about these days. And he was like, you know, we were hiring 60 plus BDRs a month in Arizona. And I'm like, how old were you? And he's like, I I don't know, like sub 30, right around that age, pretty young, really young for the responsibility that that you all had. He was probably 
27, 28. I was probably 25, 26. Right, maybe. right. And so the organization is doing a hockey stick. Yeah. And I'm like, how? And he's like, dude, I didn't know. Like, I just thought that's what you do. You know, like that's what we were doing. I thought that's what organizations like this do. I thought that was hilarious. Then when things started going absolutely bananas, yeah, like you said, you're 26 years old. I, I don't know. You're gonna be like, really disappointed with yeah, this answer. Please, it's please. just, again, I never, even now, I never stop to think about it. Cause it's sort of like a diving board. If you've ever gone on diving on a really high diving board, if you look down, you're gonna freak out and you're not gonna jump. You just gotta jump. Yeah. And so that's been my mentality. You should probably see a therapist. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably should stop to reflect on the positive moments. But for me, it's probably a defense mechanism more than anything. I don't, I don't wanna look down because yeah. if I do, I'm, I'll never jump. Yeah, that makes total sense. You kind of get a second crack at it in some ways with rippling, in a lot of ways. I was about to say, not some ways. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah. As you go through it now and you reflect back on Zenefits, and then I want to transition to Rippling because the yeah. story is just incredible. What do you feel like, I wish I had a do-over on that? Zenefits, like all startups, had a share of issues. I mean, fortunately, I think marketing was not really one of them. But for me personally, when I look back, I think my two biggest failings were probably management. I'd never managed more than two people in my life. And suddenly I was managing, you know, at one point, a hundred people between marketing or more than that. Cause I also managed the SDR team. And so I was just not a very good manager. I could probably talk for the rest of this podcast just about the reasons why, but I learned that management is a real skill that you actually have to think about. You have to practice. I wasn't ready for the pivot from the guy rolling up his sleeves, doing all the work to letting other people raise your baby and spending more time managing than doing actual hands-on work. And so at Rippling, I like to think I'm hopefully a better manager, but that was, I think, one mistake for mine. I think the second mistake was from a comms perspective, the only story we ever spoke about was hypergrowth, fastest growing company ever, or hot shit, all this kind of stuff. And I only did it because press was writing about it. Mm -hmm. So give the people what they want. Mm -hmm. The downside of that is it put a really big target on our back because the only thing press love more than sort of knocking people down is a comeback story. And by putting that target on our back, we were in league with Uber. And in terms of fast growing companies, it yep. was like us, Uber, I think there was one or two others. But as a result, I think press wanted their pound of flesh. And while Zenefits definitely had his issues, I think a majority of the stories were either just simply untrue or just wildly overblown and hyperbolic. But had we instead talked about why Zenefits was important to customers, to businesses, more macro trend stories, instead of just we're growing so fast, I think the press attitude might've been slightly different towards us. Yeah, and I assume that cascades down to when you recruit people too, like the mission that you recruit people for is like, hey, this is the fastest growing company ever. You wanna be a part of that thing. And that's the other issue. Well, one, I think you sort of attract the wrong kinds of people mm. when you do that. And I think the other issue is, is when you're not growing at crazy speeds, people lose the enthusiasm because everything's built around growth. And we never talk like that at Rippling. It really is about the product, about the customer, and about hopefully everyone financially and career-wise progressing. But talk of valuation and unicorns and all that stuff I get like viscerally upset when anyone talks about valuation. I'm, when we raised our most recent round, basically what I told the team was, look, all this valuation is, is basically proof that we're onto something and that there is sort of a hole in the universe, the shape of rippling. But all this means is we have now signed on for like three times the amount of work. And so don't celebrate until we ring the bell. And so, yeah. I think just culturally, we're very different too. So those are definitely two things that I've reflected on a lot and hopefully have improved. Let's talk about valuation stuff. This company, I'm not really sure how to characterize it anymore. It's on a tear, to put it lightly. Most recently raised at six and a half billion from Sequoia. We led the Series A. It's awesome, obviously. It's just this historic run caveat, I'm biased. We're sitting in Kleiner's office. We were the Series A investor. There's few companies, and I said this story when I had the chief customer officer of Figma on, there's few companies where 
when, and Fagman is definitely the ones I'm envious of. Yeah, well, so there's few companies that when there's these growth rounds, everybody somehow that I barely know in my yeah. private equity network is coming to me. Hey, please, can you talk to Mamoon or whatever? Like anything they can do to get the inside track. This was, for better or worse, one of those where I was like, this is madness. Like this is absolute madness. And I think to your point, it is a reflection of where the business is today. Before we get all the way into it, Zenefits wound down, or I don't even know how to characterize it. It kind of fizzled out. Yeah. Like Parker was on to the next thing. Was it kind of a no-brainer for you? All right. Um, to join Rippling? Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely not. In fact, Parker tried to recruit me for over a year. Every month he'd call me. Every month I'd tell him no. And I ended up joining when he found out I was sort of looking again, and he showed me the product because at the time I was like, oh, it's neat. It's sort of HR with some IT stuff tacked on. But I'm like, you know, I don't want to do Zenefits HR. 2.0. It's like Zenef- it's like, yeah, it's like Zenefits Plus. I don't want to do Zenefits Plus. I already rolled that boulder up a hill and I want to roll up again. Thanks, but no thanks. Love you. Godspeed. And when I saw the product, I was like, oh, I get it. You know, you're building Salesforce. And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, well, what Salesforce actually is, it's an underlying system of record for customer data. And on top of that, like what Salesforce has done is they built everything you need to manage and automate everything that touches the customer. So even if you look at Salesforce's P&L today, it's $6 billion in marketing, $6 billion in support, $6 billion in service or something like that. And I was like, well, you know, what Rippling actually is, is it's an underlying system of record for employee data of which on top of you can build things, allow you to manage, automate everything that touches the employee. And I think most people up until now, up until Rippling, everyone's point of view is, well, employee management is like HR. Like when you talk about employees, you're talking about payroll benefits, but it's way, 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 way more than that. And I think everyone has this very narrow view. And what you end up with was Zenefit sort of created this all-in-one integrated HR system, but then there's still a lot of other HR point solutions on the IT side. There's a thousand point solutions on the finance side. There's a thousand point solutions. And so what we are building is the first way to manage and automate all that stuff on top of this sort of unified employee record. And the reason I ultimately joined is because I realized businesses have three legs of a stool. They have the customer system of record, like what do you need to manage customers, service, marketing, support. Salesforce built that. No one's toppling Salesforce. Then you have your logistical system of record, your SAPs of the world, your general ledger, your supply chain, all that kind of stuff. And what I realized is no one's built the employee record. You have loosely connected HR systems, a thousand IT systems, a thousand finance systems, and a, you know, a gazillion apps that your employees use. And no one, I think, has, well, one, had the vision, but then two, would even have the audacity to build something. And then three, even like the know-how to build something like that. And so that's ultimately why I joined again. And so going back to the demo where the woman from the South was throwing F-bombs, one of the things I wanted to see before I joined was, are people going to get it? Because it's, it's sort of a new concept. And are they going to get it? And are they going to value it enough to leave their point solutions? That's one of the main reasons I, I didn't end up joining. And when I did join, I got to the office. Everyone sort of stared at me. And then someone pulled me aside and said, you're Matt, right? Yeah, nice to meet you. We've heard Parker yelling at you for like the last 12 months. Because <laughs> like Parker would always try to recruit me. Right. And at the end of the call, he'd always be like, fine, 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 fine. That's so funny. And you said everyone. How many people were there when you joined? Two dozen people, I think, maybe. Yeah. Pre-Series A? Yeah. So this was before the A, yeah. Yeah, okay. I mean, I joined in 2018, right around the time they started selling. Yep. This is all public information, but like Rippling's doubled its customers, growing ARR almost 3X over the last year. This is just on G2, which is like a product rating system, 4.9 out of five. Or it's like I, a just, Yelp, I just right? want everyone to know I did not, we did not pay, we did not well, pay in f- some, for this commentary. <laughs> this is not a sponsored ad. In, in some ways we paid for it. But anyway, yeah, I think all of that is cool. Where I find this business to be particularly interesting using your Salesforce analogy, and I had some early, early folks from Salesforce on the show, and where that business hit its inflection point was when Benioff announced the App Exchange. And what the App Exchange really did was it unlocked this entire ecosystem of other tooling that now had a home that it could live in. And when you found 
all of these new companies that could then be built and have really big market caps on their own that live on top of Salesforce. It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that way where it just builds that ecosystem. And as long as you continue to be that system of record, a lot of these bespoke networks are doing that legwork for you. Is that a fair? Yeah, uh, no. That's where my head went. No, no, you are 100%. And again, most people, when they see and think of Rippling, they're not even thinking this far ahead. I didn't get it at the time, but what he told me when he was trying to recruit me was, we're gonna be the supermarket for SaaS. And I was like, I don't even know what the hell that means. But obviously, fast forward to today, and it's exactly what happened with Salesforce. And in fact, our investors who do diligence every time, they all asked a similar question, which is, do you go to Rippling's app store before making a purchasing decision? So in other words, okay, if if I'm going to get Dropbox, I'm just thinking a random thing, does it integrate nicely with Rippling? And it was something crazy. It was like 70% or something of customers go to our app store before they buy another piece of software. And you only see dynamics like that in things like Salesforce. And I know that because I've administered Salesforce and I literally, I will not buy software before I go to Salesforce's store and see what objects does it pull, how nicely does it sync, all that kind of stuff. And then that's sort of the first thing that happened with Salesforce. They realized that, oh, we can start passing all of this customer data to other systems and they could do really neat stuff with that. So they started integrating with Zendesk and Marketo, who can then do all this completely new stuff because they had access to that record. And then sort of further down the line, people started building on top of Salesforce completely new applications that just lived on Salesforce. And there's thousands of companies that are huge companies now literally just on the backs of Salesforce's customer record And I think that's sort of the next inflection point for us. So now we're at that stage where we integrate with like 600 apps. But to your point, I think that's sort of what's next for our app ecosystem is developers coming to us saying, you have a huge customer base. You have all of the data we need. We're going to build X app. Yeah. And that ultimately, I think, drives more consumption of Rippling. And this is just me spitballing now, but the another analogy that comes to mind is like Amazon did this incredibly well, especially with AWS, where yeah. these are the golden platforms of our era, but like these are what these golden platforms have done. That's why you get to call yourself a platform is because you increase the value of all of the other components around you, which then gives you this positive feedback loop to grow your business. Yeah, And that's a very, very powerful moat. The best example of that is People would always tell me Slack's a platform. I'm like, Slack's not a platform. Slack's like a chat app that integrates with stuff and automates some workflows. And proof that they're not a platform is they got bought by Salesforce. <laughs> and like, what are they running on? Salesforce's platform. And so again, back to why did I join? There's only a few true platforms in the world. I think everyone likes to throw out the world platform, but I think there's only a few true, true systems of record. Yep, I agree. So on the way over here from the airport, I saw a checker, checker, right? The like employee background background checks. checks. It's like, I don't want to misquote this, but in the several billions last valuation, that's one product line of Rippling, right? You do employee background checks or you integrate with checker or whatever. One of the things that blew me away as we were doing, you all, obviously we participated in the growth round. And as I was looking at all the data and understanding like, what are we doing at this valuation basically? Like, this is crazy. And and now I sound like a rippling fanboy, but I suppose I am. Well, you gave us a bunch of money. So I hope, I hope you're a fan. No doubt. Is the rate of product innovation is crazy for a company of your size, which is what, a couple hundred employees? Yeah. You have, what, 10 plus products? I'm just throwing a number. We have, I think we have 20 SKUs. 20 SKUs. And the crazy thing is just one SKU we launched six months ago generated more revenue than all of our SKUs combined in the first year. And, you know, that's a combination of really two things. One, the current customer base, because people want to get the thing that's more deeply integrated. Not always, but sometimes. But then the other thing is because it's directly connected to the employee record, we can just do stuff that other systems can. Yeah. And I want to ask you how you market this stuff or how you think about it. But one of the things that blew me away is you're four or five years into the company. Yeah. And you just had the biggest product launch ever. Yeah. That doesn't happen. That's very rare for us to see a company innovating this much, this 
deep into their life, if that makes sense. Like you already have that many products and you're doing the biggest product launch. That's insane. Yeah, Paul Graham actually tweeted something almost to that exact effect, which was you only see that happen at companies like Amazon and Google. Mm. And Parker's whole philosophy, or at least product philosophy, is he's structured the engineering and product org to build one big product every quarter. But when I say product, I mean, these are these are like businesses. Each like, one- I think is, Checker's a good example. That is a multi-billion dollar business yeah. on its own every quarter. Yep. Our payroll system alone, I think, generates probably, or we process probably over 15 billion in payroll. Yeah. Um, but that's just payroll. I mean, I can't tell you what, what else we're launching, but what we launched this year was definitely pretty significant, pretty dramatic, biggest thing we've launched that have been here. But- I can tell you like our roadmap probably, at least I'm aware of a roadmap that's like a decade long and that's just one of many sort of equally sized. But again, if you look at Salesforce, if you look at Amazon, if you look at any of these guys, when you're sort of a true platform, you have that sort of product opportunity. Yep. When I saw the checker billboard, right? I was like, okay, pain point. I know what they do. I am a customer or I'm a CEO of a startup in San Francisco. I need employee background checks. Message resonates. Check. Messaging a platform is kind of corny. I don't know how else to describe it. Like, it's just very high in the sky. The salesperson in me is like, Matt, we're not addressing a pain point. We're the all-in-one solution. And people, I think, at least me, I'm very wary of the all-in-one solution. It really works. And generally, it's just a pretty shitty version of a bunch of different things. How do you balance... Pain point with ads, billboards, whatever. You can use Not the Not very well. Yeah. So if you know someone who could figure this out for me, I'd really appreciate it. But this is also one of the reasons I hesitated joining Rippling was I'm like, how the f*** do I explain this thing? It's, it's HR, IT, finance people all working in the same system. Like they've never done that before. What product do you focus on? There's no word for this. And so what we've done to date has just sort of highlighted some of the biggest benefits of some of our products, you know, onboard new hires in 90 seconds, that kind of stuff. But yeah, we're trying to figure out how to communicate Rippling at the top level. What Salesforce has done over time is, you know, now it's, what is it? I think we bring customers and businesses together and they call it the customer 360 platform or something like that. But, you know, they can do that because who doesn't know what Salesforce is at this point? If we said we bring employees and businesses together, is this like a therapy app? What does that mean? Yeah, that makes sense. You recently announced a pretty splashy partnership with Ramp, which is like corporate credit cards and travel and expense management. What does that mean? Like, are you and Sam Blonde frenemies now? Like your old counterpart running sales at Brex? I'm kind of being facetious. No, but. Sam and I will always be BFFs, but we will never be, I mean, even frenemies is pretty a strong term, but when people were thinking about investing us, every single investor, we compete with- not, Could have in some way, shape or form been conflicted out. Yeah, it's like, we don't compete with like one of their portfolio companies. We compete with five of their portfolio companies, but we're not really competing in the same way that Salesforce is not competing with the apps on their platform. Sometimes people want point solutions because they're deeper, they have specific use cases. Sometimes people have the preference for a point solution. But I think all of these point solutions, we're not going to eat them. It's just that they are going to be more successful running on a platform than by themselves. And so we have lots of apps that we compete with app partners and people go with those apps. The simplest analogy is like Apple's ecosystem. Apple has their own notepad app, but people still buy other notepad apps. But they would not get the distribution or the cust those other note apps yep. if they were just outside of the app store. But it's not like Apple ate every single note app in the world, just in the same way that we won't either. But companies will have much more distribution and probably be a lot more successful when they sell through our platform and they have access to that data and they're integrated with the platform. Another weird question, maybe not that weird, but... One of the things that struck me was that the early core team of Rippling is still the team, if that makes sense. And tell me if I'm wrong, but like many of the executives there, many of the early hires, first 40, 30, 50 people are still there as executives. Is that A, a correct characterization? And B, does that surprise you as, it's, as much as it surprises me? Because generally what I see is 
the zero to one guy like you doesn't do well scaling. Yeah. They're not a good manager to your point. They're inherently diametrically opposed qualities. So it's hard to be both. It seems like Rippling has found both in some cases. It was enough for me to be like, huh, that's surprising. And even bringing in people that I'm like, you're a scaled CFO or GC and you're coming in at pre-series A and you're being successful there and then scaling or the inverse. Like you're a startup scrappy person. I don't know. Am I, you am ever I making see the something What's that? You ever see the Sandlot? Yeah. I feel like we're the Sandlot. You have, you know, <laughs> our CFO, our general counsel, our CTO, you know, these are people who could have gotten any job they wanted and they came to us when we had no revenue almost. Back to your original point though, we definitely have some people from Zenefits. Generally, those people aren't scaling with the company because organizations like Rippling are growing so fast, it's almost incomprehensible as an individual to scale with the org. A lot of people are on the diving board and they do look down. Oh, I'd say this is probably a smaller mistake at Zenefits, but I see a lot of startups do this, which is someone is successful early on and they put them into management. And of course, they find out too late that in my case, it wasn't a disastrous failure, but oftentimes the people who were effective at zero to one are not the same people who are effective at one to two. And so this time around, I mean, I think pretty early on, we put people into leadership roles that we knew could scale. But even now, there are several people on my team that joined as ICs that have moved into leadership positions. And it's about me being honest with them and them being honest with themselves when they start hitting their ceiling. Now they, I mean, they haven't done that yet, but I probably should have been more honest with myself at some point at Zenefits. I left before, I think I sort of hit the ceiling anyway, but I felt like I was getting close. Do you think it's harder for a startup person to scale or for a scaled person to start up? Scaled person to start up, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think that's because they've never had such limited resources that force the creativity required to just make it? I think it's a combination of things. I think the people who come from giant companies, I think one, they already had the playbook. I mean, again, this is not true for everyone. A lot of our leadership team, like I said, came from huge companies and joined when we were nothing. But in general, my experience is people that come from huge companies, they just took the controls over from someone else. Someone else already built the plane. So they don't really know what goes into the engine and all that kind of stuff. I think the second thing is they oftentimes, I've never had to, not that working at a big company is easy. It's definitely not. But I think the level of grit and, you know, if someone at Google screws up, barring a few people, like Google's not going to implode if someone screws up. If I fuck up, Rippling could implode. And if some people on my team fuck up, Rippling could implode. That's just a level of pressure and stress that I think most people at a certain point in your life just don't want to deal with anymore. I'm a masochist, so I think I need that pressure. <laughs> Otherwise, I won't have a drive. You're more likely to find someone who is not scaled that can scale than someone who's coming from a scaled environment. Agreed. Have you learned or developed tools to cope with that pressure more effectively over time? No, like I said, I should probably see it there. Fun fact. So after Zenefits, I guess I can say this now because I'm in California, but I basically just sort of got high on my couch for two months and was just sort of bummed about where the company was going and leaving and all that kind of stuff. And then I moved to New York, hence the baseball cap and done with tech, done with San Francisco, not going to do this to myself again. And then I joined another company with great company, great people doing probably close to 200 million in revenue. But within six months, I was deeply depressed. First off, I was making a ton of money. I was rolling in at 10, leaving around 4.30, 5. And I'd never been so depressed. I was more depressed than after leaving Zenefits. And I realized I needed this energy and passion and drive of a startup. I needed that for my own personal well-being and happiness. And I think that's not normal. Do you do what I try and do, which is sell people? It's like in sales, you kind of want to qualify out. People think, especially in the early days, 
you want to get as many people into the funnel and talk to as many people. Generally, I'm trying to qualify as many people out of the funnel as possible to get to the real core early users. I kind of think of employees in the early days as the same way, even now. Do you share, hey, this sucks. This is like hard, really shitty. Do you you try and sell people out of it? Does that make sense? So I actively try and convince people not to join. I think I do it a bit more tactfully than you just did. (laughs) Um, But I definitely think- I don't do anything tactfully. (laughs) Also, I think startups make this mistake. Every single candidate, I usually do two things in interviews. One, at some point, I try and see how easily it is to fluster them. And then the second thing I do is if I know that we're likely to extend an offer, I basically paint a picture of two worlds for people. And I say, look, I've been in a relationship for a decade with someone with my partner. And I think the key to a good relationship is honesty, transparency, and communication. And I want to be open and transparent about the relationship you're getting into. Rippling is not for everyone, but the people who it's for, there's nothing else like it. And what I mean by that is this is an incredibly fast-paced, high-pressure, and yes, with that stressful environment. We're not a sweatshop. We're not working 18-hour days. I worked 12-hour days at Benefits. I'll never do that again. We're working normal hours, but we set incredibly audacious goals. We hold each other to an incredibly high bar. And to your point, we're releasing huge products every quarter. It's a pressure cooker. But the people who are here are looking for that environment. And so let me ask you, if you had the option between, I sort of paint the picture of rippling, like what it's like to work here, or working at a Google where, quite frankly, you'll probably make more money, at least on the cash side, you'll have a lot less stress, but you'll probably be a cog in a wheel in many aspects, probably take you longer to progress. Which of those worlds resonate with you? And 90% of the time people pick the first option, but the other 10% of the time people bow out. And so as a result, culturally, I think the marketing team, we're pretty impervious (laughs) to startup life. I think we have probably thicker skin than most. And I've heard you say, look for the crazy ones before. Is that what you mean by that? Crazy? I don't know. Although there was, (laughs) so the current guy who leads our growth team we originally hired him as an IC and I, I interviewed him for an hour. I left the room and I turned to my coworker and I said, this guy is either batshit crazy or a genius. We should hire him. He ended up, I think, being more on the genius side. And I think that's probably the people I look for. But there's many ways to build a business. You definitely don't have to take the crazy approach. <laughs> yeah. I have in my notes here that you all kind of remind me of the rebels of Silicon Valley. I guess it's Kind of ironic that you're wearing a Yankees hat in the Kleiner office, but anyway, maybe that's an episode title. If you're going to be employee one, why wouldn't you be the founder? And obviously you're at a different point in your life now, but let's assume you're going into the next one. I will never, ever, ever be a founder, ever. I think the people who are founders have a screw loose. You've got to, I don't know what drives you, but I do not have, I mean, I have a pretty strong stomach and I don't have the stomach to be a founder. I couldn't deal with the pressure of letting people down. It stresses me out enough, the idea of failing for me, it's not that I fail, it's that my team fails as well. And I, I just can't stomach that. I can't deal with investors. I, I am passionate about my job, but I'm not passionate about all the things that surrounds a business. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's not for everyone. One of the things that you're notorious for. Am I infamous? Well. Is there a word on the street about me? I can. I don't tweet and I I don't post on LinkedIn. I think to be fair, I have a little bit of inside info and I know you're bored and some of the team pretty well, but you, and maybe let's just broaden it to marketing at Rippling and previously at Zenefits has this notorious thing around experimentation. And one of the things that I thought about was, okay, Six and a half billion dollar valuation. You're playing catch up to the hockey stick at this point, right? And you're doing everything in your power to not only from the product side and not only from the sales side, but from the marketing side, continue to tinker on finding ways to like pull levers that then help you grow into that valuation as quickly as possible, achieve that benchmark, get the business to the next thing, go public, et cetera. Does your 
scale of experimentation just grow? Or does the amount of experiments grow or both? I mean, I think it's both. I mean, it's linear. The more people, more money, more tests. Yeah, so not a very exciting answer, unfortunately. Okay, so- Unless there's a question behind the question. Well, the question behind the question is more billboards? I'm gonna take an Uber after this to another part of the city and probably every billboard and bus stop that I see will have rippling on it. And before that, it was Zenefits. And I think in some ways you've taken the playbook and executed it in a really interesting way here, Zenefits Plus. I'm very curious if there is another thing that's brewing that you probably can't share it now, but like, I don't know, what's the next plane that's flying over Google? Do you still have that spirit in you to do things like that? At uh, yeah. this type of company? Well, I mean, that, that's the only way, unless you're Figma, which again, amazing product. I know nothing about Figma, don't know at Figma. My assumption is Figma is growing as quickly as they are because of its virality. A designer invites another designer, yeah. they use it. I mean, it's way better than Adobe. Yeah. Now I've lost career opportunities with Google and Adobe. Yeah. <laughs> that might be by design, no pun intended. Yeah. And like Slack, they have a viral product. With us in a saturated space, if you do what everyone else is doing, you can't grow 3X, just can't happen. Everyone has the same toolkit at the end of the day. You have billboards, you have email, you have AdWords, you have Facebook. Everyone has the same mediums to distribute their message through. The question is, do you have the right message and are you distributing it creatively? And so I'll give you an example, direct mail. Now we are doing direct mail that's working, but we did a lot that failed. I'll give you like two of the stupid, crazy ideas we did that failed. One was we sent people a box within a box within a box within a box within a box, Russian doll style. And in the final box, it's like a little note that said, in the amount of time that it took you to open this box, you could have onboarded and set up your next hire. The feedback on that was, what a waste of material. And we're like, okay, maybe that's not a good idea. Another thing we did was we sent giant pizza boxes to people and we said, like, lunch on us. Give us 20 minutes to prove that we can do X, Y, and Z, and we'll get lunch for your whole team. Also completely bombed. But what I see other people in our space doing is sending out one-pagers with super easy-to-use payroll. I don't see people sending out pizza boxes and mm -hmm. nested doll boxes. And the people who send the one or two-pagers about free payroll and that kind of stuff, like they're not going to get 3x growth. It's the people who send pizza boxes. But the downside is you have to fail and up 99 times before usually you get the hundredth time the crazy idea that pans out. I think the box within the box is a pretty good I idea. I thought it was funny. Yeah, I think it's a pretty good idea. There is actually one, in terms of creativity, one thing I've learned about being a CMO, usually it is one or two things that allows you to continue growing 3X, but those one or two things only last for like eight to 12 months because you know what happens? I go on a podcast. Yep. People learn about the idea or people see the idea, everyone takes it, and then the effectiveness of that tactic just plummets. And so the job of a CMO, one of the jobs of a CMO is to basically be looking for that next ace up your sleeve before the current one runs out. And I think maybe to take your point a step further, not only is there a duration of time that it's gonna last, but for every one to two that work, there's probably eight to 10 behind it that didn't. Is that fair? Yeah, two things I tell my team are, if you're succeeding more than you're failing, then you're not testing enough. And if you're happy with what you're putting out, then you probably spend too long on it. Yeah. One of the exercises that, and this isn't like a genius thing that I came up with or anything, but this idea of forced scarcity, one of the things that I know Rippling has done and, and you have done up until recently, and, and maybe still today, is this idea that we're not gonna do paid marketing. Like we're not gonna do paid marketing being like ads on Twitter yeah. and Facebook. And what that does is it's like, well, if we're not gonna do that, it forces creativity in a way that you can't do otherwise. And so I often tell our portfolio, like take six months, use that money in five other creative ways and force scarcity in the organization to see like, what do you do? I don't know, is that why you did it? I mean, that's whether Parker does it on purpose or not. I've always been in that situation because of Parker. <laughs> yeah, He's always run his company's lean and when you only have so much money, you can't blow it on Facebook and AdWords. And most of the time anyways, the house always wins. The game's rigged and it's usually empty calories people doing AdWords. And well, Facebook. it brings out the best in you. 
Yeah. I mean, dude, you had $6,000. You're setting a cutout. It brings out the best in you. I think those patterns repeat themselves throughout a career. All you have to do is quit your job, burn through your bank account, get super depressed, feel hopeless, and there you go. That's the secret to success. That's the type of inspirational- and take your pants off. That's the type of inspirational closing I was hoping for. Obviously, Rippling's hiring. Rippling is hiring for everything. Are there any key roles that you want to shout out where if the audience is listening, is inspired by this story and wants to go take this company public with you, what are the key roles that you have in the org? Everything? We're pretty much hiring one of everything. Okay. So if you were semi-entertained by this podcast and I didn't scare you off and you believe in what you're doing and you're smart and passionate, a little crazy and creative, then odds are we'll want you on the team. What's the best way to get a hold of you? Probably my mom, because I don't respond really to my phone or text or anything. You don't do anything on LinkedIn. I only respond to my mom's text messages, so <laughs> should probably send an email to my mom. But in actuality, if you do want a job, I'm deciding if, if I give my email, am I going to get a bunch of marketers spamming me? Uh, you might. Let's go for it. I always like reading other people's cold emails. So it's M. Epstein at rippling.com. I hope you get some cardboard cutouts. That's what I'm really hoping. If someone sent me a cardboard cutout, I would give them an interview <laughs> on the spot. You know, the irony is, and then we can wrap this thing, the guy that I just hired, who's an absolute superstar, got his first job at MongoDB with a mustache, cutting out a cardboard copy of him and sending it to Mongo. Imitation is the greatest form of flattery. Hey, look, if he got the job, more power to him. He did, it became a star there. All right, Matt. Thank you. Yeah, cool. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.